Hi, it's Arjun, live from Veriden's offices in Houston with a video update to last week's post about the need for the energy transition to transition away from what has really been sort of a Europe and U.S. focused discussion to one that really takes into account the energy needs of the rest of the world. The other 7 billion people that live on Earth, they are going to be the driver of how commodity supply demand, how energy transition and ultimately decarbonization and environmental goals are met or not met and in what time frame. Let me get right into the video here. So energy transition, as I think you all know, in starting Super Spiked and joining Veridin, it has been my motivation to help the energy transition move from what has been a very messy energy transition era to one that ultimately can become a healthier energy evolution. One of the key things I think is needed is to recenter the discussion away from what we do, away from what Europe does. We're about eight to 900 million people that use a disproportionate amount of the world's energy. There are still 7 billion people that live in the rest of the world that are ultimately going to drive how all this plays out. And I wanted to get into some of the key themes and points about what it means to recenter this discussion towards a rest of the world type focus. A theme that has impacted traditional energy companies has been financing. And I think we're starting to see it's also going to impact rest of world energy supply. And I'll, I'll get into that. I think you all are now familiar with my concerns about the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and the related entities, the weaponization of the IEA's Net Zero by 2050 report. We've seen it impact traditional energy companies, especially in Europe and to some degree in the U.S. We're starting to see it impact rest of world energy supplies. And I think it's an issue, and I'll spend a few seconds on it. One of the things we've seen really since Russia, UK, Ukraine has been an effort to have some transition of a discussion that was only about climate to what people call the energy trilemma, dealing with affordability, geopolitical security, and climate. The, the issue with the trilemma-type narrative is it treats those three things as if they're equal considerations. I, I think what you can see anywhere in the world, we see it in Germany, we see it in the US, we certainly see it in the developing world, is if you do not have energy, if it is unavailable for whatever reason, all that matters is regaining that availability. Russia cuts off gas to Europe. All Germany cares about is getting energy back online. For them, it meant lignite coal. Well, what about the rest of the world? What about the other 7 billion people? What about the 1 to 3 billion people, some of whom have nothing, uh, many of which have very little, and certainly far less than what we all take for granted here? I'd argue it is really a hierarchy of needs that we are solving for. You've got to have available energy first and foremost. You'll pay anything for it. Then ideally it is affordable. Hopefully it's from geopolitically secure countries. And after those three considerations, then we start taking into account things like clean air, clean water, biodiversity, and climate. And it is not to minimize those concerns. Those are real concerns. And I think there's an opportunity to do multiple things at a time, but you, you have to have energy first and foremost. It is a hierarchy of needs. And I think the sooner we recognize that, the, the faster we'll get to hopefully some better solutions. I think the last point I'll get into today is just really how domestic supply-demand balances, which are going to vary greatly by country. Some are long crude oil, some are short, some have good solar potential, some not so much. Uh, many are long coal, but not long natural gas, an example. When you go country by country, I think you start having a, a different understanding of what energy transition means, and it is going to vary by country, by region, uh, and by energy commodity. So let's talk about the rest of the world. And so this is a graph of population of US, Canada, Europe, and Japan. It's the bar, it's on the left axis. 
Maybe there's eight or 900 million people in these areas. And we, of course, are using a disproportionate amount. I'm, I'm graphing oil consumption per capita here, uh, pushing 15, 16 barrels per person. Look at the rest of the world. That's where the other 7 billion people leave, uh, live. They are using, on average, about three barrels, so 20% of the consumption for 7 billion people. Yeah, 7x the people, 20% of the consumption. Uh, and this is going to be the challenge that we face going forward. This is simply crude oil. You can look at natural gas. You can look at coal. You can look at energy overall. What is the fate? What is ultimately the trajectory for how does this other 7 billion people on Earth, how do they meet their energy needs? This is going to be the big energy transition question. What are the sources? How is it financed? Um, we can take all the steps we want to limit our use. It is going to be the other 7 billion people on Earth who are going to want some energy. So let's just put a little spotlight on the financing issue. So it's recent news. This is from a Bloomberg headline about Standard Chartered uh, UK banks saying, I think they're now the 25th bank between uh, Europe, US and some Asian firms to say no to financing a oil, oil pipeline from Uganda, Uganda to Tanzania. Um, and I think the question is, um, is this okay? What does it mean for us to say, due to energy transition, due to climate concerns, we're not going to help finance this, this pipeline? And so let's talk about economic and social justice in Africa. There are 1.3 billion people in Africa. They use 4 million barrels a day of oil. There are 900 million people in the United States, Canada, Europe. They use 36 million barrels a day. 1.3 billion people, 4 million barrels a day, 900 million people, 9x the amount of oil consumption. Yet, uh, yet we are saying you do not get to have a 200 to 250,000 barrel a day pipeline uh, in these two African countries. Africa as a continent actually exports 3 million barrels a day of oil to the rest of us. Now in the U.S., Thanks to the shale revolution, we are not importing as much Nigerian crudes as we used to. But Europe, other parts of Asia, uh, Africa is a huge exporting region. Yet again, we are saying you don't get to have 200 to 250,000 barrel a day pipeline from Uganda to Tanzania. So we've talked about uh, traditional energy companies facing some financing challenges. But, but let's be frank, if you're a large company in the U.S., maybe even a large company in Europe, you're going to have some alternatives. You're going to have free cash flow. You're going to have some balance sheet capacity. But what about these countries? What about these developing countries that are getting the message that U.S. and European banks leading the charge here, under these types of net zero alliances, they're being told they don't get to have their pipeline when they're using a fraction of the oil, a fraction of the oil that we do here in the West. And the question is, what is the, where is the economic and social justice in that? And are there any lessons to learn from history that we should be mindful of? As I mentioned last week, I'm not an African history expert for sure. But is there a legacy of colonialism, imperialism? Um, was there a situation where people were forced to, to leave the continent, to go to work elsewhere against their will? What are some of these lessons that we should be mindful of when we start telling African developing countries what they're allowed to, to, to develop or not develop? We may have a perspective on what is the right way to do energy transition. I'd ask, what is their perspective? So let's talk about some energy supply considerations. And I really think how energy transition ultimately gets resolved is going to be a function of what are the needs of countries, what are their resources, and how does that play out? So first point, 
domestic resources are always going to trump imports. So what do you have? Right? This is going to be important for coal. If you have a lot of coal resources, why would you be importing something else? I think that's, this is the first thing to be mindful of. Coal is going to be cheaper than both oil and liquefied natural gas. So I think there's a presumption we can decolify the world. And somehow this is going to be uh, a key driver of decarbonization. But if you're a developing country and you've got massive quantities of affordable, available coal that results in local jobs and taxation revenues, I think there's a question of how much of that you're going to really displace with imported forms of energy that you may not have. There is clearly a role for renewables and other new technologies that can selectively complete. You may not want to import oil from various points of the world. If you're in a place where you get good solar radiation, where you might have some ability to have some storage and elsewhere, uh, it's quite possible that a variety of new technologies will be used here. Uh, I think the idea, though, that this is the be-all and end-all answer for all countries and all regions, I think that's the part that we're going to push back on a little bit. I think there's a huge opportunity for energy-efficient growth. I don't think uh, India, as an example, is likely to develop in the same kind of highly energy-intensive way that China did. Uh, and there is lots of lessons that they could learn from how the U.S., Europe, and other countries have developed to avoid some of the mistakes we've made to employ newer technologies. So it's quite possible that the energy intensity of GDP growth can be much better in some of these developing countries. That is going to be a consideration as well. I think the last thing that is a very evidently clear, especially if we are serious about decarbonization, is we're going to need a nuclear Marshall Plan, if you will. And that is going to be one of the avenues by which countries can have available, dependable, reliable power that is essentially zero carbon. And we're probably going to have to help with that to some degree. So let's talk about supply-demand balances by country. And I apologize for all the, the numbers on this graph. But here we're looking at uh, three basic commodities, crude oil, natural gas, and coal. And we're looking at it for U.S., Canada, Europe, China, India, and Africa. And I think just a few things jump out looking at this. First, green is good, red is bad. Look at U.S. Canada on crude oil, natural gas, and coal. And collectively, these two areas, U.S. and Canada, are either neutral or long, these very important energy commodities. And so I would say we are as well positioned as anybody uh, to, I think, do okay during this transition period. And I think we're blessed to have these resources. I think the second thing that jumps out is Europe's on the other side of that. They are very short crude oil. They're very short natural gas. They do kind of net import some coal. I think they clearly have coal resources that they're choosing to not develop. But certainly on crude oil, certainly on natural gas, it is a motivation for them to want to try and transition faster. When you are so dependent on the rest of the world for your energy supply resources, that makes you want to do something differently. One of the points, though, is, is we're not in that position. In the U.S. and Canada, we're not in the position of Europe. Thank goodness. And so how they go about transition is not necessarily how we should want to go about transition. I think another key point is let's look at China. China is a very large, they're the largest oil importer in the world. Uh, over 11 million barrels a day of net oil imports. They do not have some massive oil fields still to be developed. So when you think about China's electrification efforts, their move to electric vehicles, it's logical. So all this stuff isn't necessarily about climate. There is a geopolitical security element to why a country like China would want to do electric vehicles. It's logical for them to try and go down that route and limit the amount of oil they import. But the other point on China is they're also long coal. So look at their coal balances. They're in the, 
I, I labeled them green. They have more coal uh, supply or about as much coal supply as they do demand. It's a huge source of jobs. It's a huge source of tax revenues. To the extent that country's population has peaked, to the extent their economy has gone through its most intensive period of economic growth, what's their motivation to shift off a of coal to other stuff? Now, there's some environmental reasons, there's some pollution control reasons, but I'm going to be in that skeptical bucket that China's really going to be shifting off coal anytime soon. I think for a country like India, it's a question. So on the one hand, India, with 1.3 billion people, is closer to Africa in terms of its current oil use. And I think if you spend some time studying electric grid, there's a, a long way to go towards ensuring that electrification of, say, their vehicle fleet is even possible. And I suspect they're going to go through an all-of-the-above kind of strategy. They'll be driving more cars that are internal combustion engines. They'll try in the margin to have some electric vehicles. They also do not have a large natural crude oil resource base to develop. So there is going to be a motivation for energy efficiency to try different and new technologies. Um, but I suspect when you look at how low their oil demand is today, again, relative to the size of the population, just 5 million barrels a day. Um, and this, these are 2021 data points from the BP Statistical Review of World Energy. I think there's going to be a lot of growth in sort of all of the above, but including oil. India is interesting on the coal side, where they also, like China, have a large coal resource. They do import some of their coal. There, they might be some room to import LNG and other technologies. There may be room for solar and wind to take, or especially solar, to take up some amount of share. But I think it's studying the needs of these individual countries. What do they need? What are their balances? What are they long? What are they short? Um, this, to me, is the recentering that's needed in this discussion, as opposed to simply here in the U.S. or in Europe, we have various policies that you might think are bad, some may think are good, and as if this is going to be a determinant to what any of these countries do. Again, one I think the big lessons post-Russia, Ukraine is, the rest of the world increasingly does not need us like perhaps they once did. Now that Uganda pipeline may, may belie that. There's still going to be countries that would benefit from financing by U.S. and European banks, as an example. Uh, but that's not true for all these countries. I think a country like India, certainly a country like China, um, they seem more capable of going it alone uh, without needing us. I think what's interesting also on this graph is Africa. Africa is actually long a lot of these resources. They're long crude oil, they're long natural gas, and they're long coal. And they're actually exporting this stuff to the rest of the world. We are using their resources. What about their 1.3 billion people? They use very little oil domestically. They actually burn very little coal domestically, uh, and they're generally lower on the rung in terms of natural gas usage. They are actually um, selling their resources to the rest of the world, yet their population rivals currently India and China, and based on projections, will likely be the largest area in the world going forward. How do they resolve this? Um, how do they resolve this without being dependent on us, actually, or Europe? Um, I think it's going to be one of the big questions out there. And it's, to me, a different perspective and a more interesting perspective than trying to guess U.S. and European politics on these types of questions. I think just the final slide I wanted to go through is just a different way to maybe think about some of these commodities. This, again, is crude oil, natural gas, and coal. And look at coal. Coal is basically no longer really used at all or to any great degree uh, in U.S., Europe, or Japan. Still used a little bit, but not a whole lot. It is now 80%, over 80%, a non-OECD commodity. The declines that have happened in the OECD are kind of behind us. 
And so in many respects, it might actually have the most certain demand outlook of any of these three commodities. In the case of crude oil, there clearly is room for efficiency gains, especially in the U.S. There is going to be some amount of electrification that happens to our vehicle fleet in the U.S. and Europe, and it is going to create a choppier path for crude oil going forward. I think in the case of natural gas, it's got a brighter outlook, but, in the, but is more dependent on what Europe decides to do. There's a big chunk of European demand in there. Europe is trying to go forward with hydrogen and a bunch of new technologies that I am personally skeptical they can deliver on the kind of timeframes they're depending on. And so I think there will be quite a bit of natural gas usage in Europe, but I will acknowledge that there's an uncertainty to that that actually doesn't exist in coal. Coal's a non-OECD commodity. That is exciting. It is set up to help the rest of the world meet its energy needs. And again, I think all three of these are going to grow over the next 10 years, at least for crude oil, 20 years for natural gas. And coal may be somewhere in that 10 to 20 year type category. Again, if you go back and say 7 billion people who are using a fraction of our energy, who's to say the timeframes for the demand growth of these areas are limited to just the next couple decades? So I'll end this video on a personal note. And I wanted to highlight a meeting I had about a month ago uh, with my affiliation with Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy, uh, a meeting with First Nations groups from Canada. And I have to say it's my first time meeting uh, representatives of those organizations. And as they will say, um, I met with folks from a number of different First Nations. There are many of them, and those people didn't necessarily speak for the entirety of the First Nations population. But I went to the meeting, quite frankly, as a favor to a colleague of mine at Columbia, and I went expecting to hear a bunch of complaints about Western oil and gas companies, and maybe I'd take something away. And I honestly, I was blown away by how welcoming uh, these representatives were. I think they had some great ideas about developing um, the resources that exist under their lands, or at least the lands that they currently own. And they came from the perspective of, how can we partner with the finance community, with companies? Please stop treating us as if we're the in-between of a problem with the government or a problem with the company. And I just want to say that it kind of goes into the full spirit of the video we're shooting today, which is, it's about recentering on the energy needs of the rest of the world. It's about us not dictating our values and our policies on how the rest of the world should develop. And I think that applies to even the folks like from these First Nations groups. This was, a, again, a Canadian group. How do we bring them into the conversation? I'll just say that it's my first meeting. Uh, I'm excited to do some follow-up, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have visited with the representatives as part of that Columbia meeting. Thank you.